and I flip it. I say, this is going to cost three grand. And then they go, that's too pricey. And I say, I'll give you a discount for being one of the first customers. And I drop it because it's not up to me to push the price up. It's up to them to push the price down. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talk to Samuel Thompson. Samuel is a serial entrepreneur who's all about growth. In his words, too many people are just shipping products instead of building a growth machine. In this episode, we'll jump into how you can build a profitable internet business and how to build a flywheel that enables exponential growth. My name is Yannick, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Sam, I know a little about you, but for the audience, tell us who you are and what made you jump into entrepreneurship. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm currently the the CEO and founder of Jetpack. We're a growth-focused company. We have a couple of different things that we do there. Uh, we have a community of entrepreneurs. Everything is focused on growth. We do our own investments as well as build our own projects, mostly in the creator space and consult and do agency work for big companies as well. Starting off in entrepreneurship, I was kind of just the weird kid back in like middle school that just like loved messing around with like Wix websites and making Facebook accounts for fake businesses just kind of for fun. It was just like my little thing that I did. And before that, were you the guy who was selling candy in school or not? No, no, I wasn't. Before I got into that, actually... I used to flip iPhones on eBay. And so I call myself, no one calls me this because I don't really talk about it, but I call myself like the OG drop shipper because I would like list all of these iPhones on eBay for prices that I knew were higher than I could buy them for. And someone would buy them and then I'd go on eBay and I'd buy another person's iPhone and just change the shipping address. And then I would just take whatever my margin was. And so I guess that's like, I never really talk about drop shipping before it was invented. Yeah, like before it was really a thing. And so I just, I kind of did that for a while, which was like, cool. That was like, I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I was like flipping iPhone fours. Like it was like old school back in the day. And then, yeah, it's just like messing around with all those sites. And this restaurant opened up in Los Angeles where I'm from. And uh, I talked to the owner and he was like, yo, I need a website and a Facebook page. And I was like, yo, I'll do it for a thousand bucks. And he was like, sure. And I was like, oh, there's like money here. That's sick. And this was, I don't know, 2011. So like before everybody and their brother had an agency that they were running. And so I kind of just caught it early and ended up managing the social accounts for like 40 restaurants and hotels in California, which was nice. And it was like back then you didn't have to do anything crazy. You literally like had to post on social media and like manage their page. There was like, you still had organic reach a hundred percent. Like back in the day when you were like, yo, we could get this thing to 10,000 followers without paid ads or hashtag strategies or like anything crazy. It was like, all I had to do was post consistently. How old were you? I started when I was 15 and ended up exiting that business when I was 18. Yeah, I think once I realized that everybody was about to start an agency in the next two years, I was like, I don't really want to run an agency like that. All the margins were getting cut. And like, I was just like, yo, I, I'm not down anymore. I was going to leave California and go to college. And so I was just like, yeah, let, let me get out. Let me go do this college thing, which is a whole nother story. It didn't really work out for me. But you dropped out? I dropped out of college. Yeah, twice, actually. I left once to go. Uh, I was going to Boston University. I left the first time 
when I don't know if you know Gerard Adams, who's like the co-founder of Elite Daily, sold it for fifty million dollars in like twenty sixteen. Him and I had connected actually through Instagram, and he was like, "Yo, you should come out to New York and be a part of this like social impact venture accelerator situation that he was doing." And so I left to do that. That was fun, doing a lot of work in Newark, New Jersey as well. Then the time came for me to decide if I was going to stay or if I was going to go do my own thing. And I just made the decision to go and do my own thing. And I went back to school for a semester. And then I was like, yep, this just really, really, really isn't the move. And so I ended up dropping out again, officially, like for real after that. And uh, yeah, just been, been working ever since. That was almost four years ago now, three years ago, which is crazy. So what happened after you dropped out for the second time? I just started building again, basically partnered up with some people to do a venture studio model then, you know, had some success, realized that I wanted to do some things as just me instead of like as a partner with like a bunch of other people also telling me what to do. And there was like weird partnership dynamics where I felt like I kind of had a boss still. And I didn't like that. I don't function well when there's like an authority above me telling me what I can and can't do especially when I'm the one making all the money for the entire operation. And so that's the short version. After I dropped out, I did that for about a year. And then I was like, yo, I'm, I'm done. I'm like going to do my own thing. Um, and essentially went on this like 18 month, I call it like recess. Like when you're at school, you know, you're like, you got through the first little couple periods of class and then you have recess and you get to have fun. And so I kind of just was like, yo, like, I'm going to take 18 months. I had bulked up enough cash to just be chilling. So I was like 18 months to literally just chase anything that I thought was interesting and did a whole bunch of stuff in those 18 months. And and we're coming out at the end of that. Like we ended basically at the end of 2020 was kind of my, the bell at the end of recess on, all right, everybody come back in. It's time to get back to work. And so, yeah, been been super locked in on a couple of the things that we did in that time that saw a lot of traction and are performing well, decided to take everything that I learned and, and put it all in the jetpack. And that's always been my focus is like, I care about growth more than product. They coincide, but I'm a growth guy. I like, we're going to scale companies and make money. That's my goal. We're going to build products literally so that we can just do that. The product itself can be whatever, as long as it provides value, but it needs to fit into the growth strategies that I want so that we can scale quickly. We're also part of the Jetpack community, so to speak. Tell us a little bit, you know, first founders are struggling. What's my product? How do I get the product market fit? But once they see some traction, then it's time to call Jetpack and get some real growth. That is. Yeah. I mean, like, for real, I start and it's, it's funny because it's like the whole Twitter thing. And I, I really only started on Twitter maybe three months ago in like December of 2020. And it's now well, February. So I'm about 90 days in. And I made the switch to Twitter and, and started diving into like more of kind of like the indie hacker. And I don't know, I guess like these no code communities and things like that. I don't know, I just was kind of like learning and seeing what everyone was focused on. And I've done no code my entire life. I don't know how to be a developer, but I've scaled SaaS products and things that, that I've built. And I didn't even know that no code was like a community. I was like, I didn't even know it was a thing until December. And so I started joining MakerPad and Everything Marketplaces and and a couple of these, mostly interested in their growth channels and their marketing segments within these communities. And (laughs) they were dead. 
nobody was talking about growth. Nobody was talking about marketing. Everyone was so focused on building a product or raising money or like all of these things that were outside of what I considered to be literally the lifeblood of a business, which is increasing revenue every single month. Like that's what businesses are supposed to do in my mind. And then New Year's hit and I popped in these communities and everyone's putting all of their like New Year's resolutions, their goals for 2021. And people are like, yo, I want to launch 12 products in 12 months. And I'm sitting here, dude, I'm literally, I'm on my laptop and I have to put my lap, I literally, I put my laptop down and I, I grab my head and I'm like, what the bleep is going on here? Like, and the craziest part is 90% of these people are still working a nine to five that they hate. And the whole point of them doing this whole indie hacker thing is to get out of that. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, dude, it's like not the hardest thing to take relatively any product to like at least 5k a month. Really, 10k a month is like you could do 10k a month. But for 5k, you, you can quit your job and your. That's what I'm saying, and I think that people's focus was like just on the wrong things. And so I saw, with all of that being said, and my background in growth, I was like, okay, there needs to be like a go-to resource for people that are serious about growth. I don't want people in Jetpack that are like about to build their ninth project this year. Like, no, no, no. We want somebody that has a product that they really believe in that's starting to see some traction that they really like and there's product market fit there. And then they come to us and we talk about, okay, how do you scale organic acquisition? How do you do paid ads? How do you make a higher converting landing page? How do you capitalize on SEO? Let's unpack that a little because I think the first big struggle is to get to product market fit. What do you do to founders that where you see, you know, this product, it has no traction yet. What do you tell them? Yeah, I, I say go on a listening tour. The beauty of the digital landscape that we live in, that's literally, it's been, you know, essentially even greater now because of quarantine and people having to exist digitally is like your perfect customer, perfect. Like the exact person is literally a DM away. Send a message, get them on the phone for 15 minutes just to understand their pain points, understand what your product from point A to point B, where are you taking them? Hype Fury. People are struggling to grow on Twitter for X, Y, and Z reasons. Height Fury does A, B, and C to get them to the goal that they're looking for. It's like a very, very simple equation. And I think a lot of people, specifically in the indie hacker and have technical backgrounds, miss that. And they build a product that they think is phenomenal. And like you and I joke about dark mode on our calls, but like, dude, the number of indie hackers that list dark mode as a feature on their landing page boggles my mind. Unless you're selling a product to developers, right? And developers are the only people that in reality, dude, if Twitter didn't have a dark mode, I'd still use Twitter. It's not a core value stack of what it is. And that's like I said at the very beginning, it's like we build products that are one valuable, but focus on what allows for us to grow them. Meaning what we focus like so heavily on the core value of what it is, not all this extra stuff. To me, I think people do it out of fear. Subconsciously, they want to extend out the timeline until they have to launch because that's facing your fear of launch. And so I think that there's all of this madness about building and then and then and then when like, and you and I have talked about this and I'm not allowed to talk about it super publicly, but like I built a company in four hours and got it to 30K in MRR in 60 days right? 
This thing was built on Typeform, Google Sheets, and Webflow for like the first three weeks. It wasn't pretty, but it works. And so it's like focusing so heavily on the value that you provide. Being able to explain that, going back to this product market fit piece, is like you really just have to understand your customer. And so if you haven't had 50 conversations, and in Hype Fury's case, if you didn't talk to 50 people that were super interested in growing on Twitter, it would be really challenging for you, one, to build the features that actually matter, and two, position that properly on a landing page in your marketing material so that you could actually get those conversions. And so we have people in Jetpack that do that, and that's we do, you know, and we do daily office hours. And one of the the girls that was in there last night literally showed us a landing page, and I was like, I have no idea what your business does because it's missing those key pieces. And I started asking her about customers and what have they said about it, all of this. And I think that again, it goes back to, and not in her case specifically, but I think a lot of people fear going public with things because, like. The moment you ask for feedback, somebody can tell you that your shit sucks. And that's scary. I'm scared of it. I just ha- I like know that I have to do it for business. But like, I think people that have the security of a job and, you know, consistent income, it's more challenging for them to take that leap and take that fear when like they really need to, to be able to actually build a product that the market wants and the market loves. And I think that's a big piece of it. I guess you need to solve a critical problem for the user. And yes, you know, you can have a layer of dark mode and stuff like that. It needs to look good. You know, you don't want them to think, oh, this, this has been built like 10 years ago. And that's totally fair. And I think, but the, the nice thing about that is the barrier to entry to creating an aesthetically pleasing product is lower than ever. Use Webflow. Like you can build a very, you know, the, the minimum viable product, the MVP of whatever your value is going to be very, very inexpensively and have it look phenomenal without doing any work. Like I don't even hire anyone to do my landing pages anymore because Webflow is there and it takes me five minutes to fill in the copy and then run 10 bucks worth of ads to just gauge interest before we even built the backend. It's exactly what we did on that. And for Bump, which we can talk about a little bit, which is the influencer marketing you know, discovery tool that we have. Dude, we literally put an Airtable embedded in, in the back end of the site, but it looked good because it was Webflow and Airtable. Like it's, it doesn't have to be this you know, $50,000 UX UI contract to make something that's presentable to the market. Once you have product market fit, what do you do then? What's the next step? The first thing that I always focus on is, well, there's two steps. One, raise your prices. Raise your prices because when you're first getting started, I always say this even internally, really, for companies that we're starting that I don't think are necessarily prepared for Facebook ads or paid acquisition. And essentially getting to 10K is a hustle game. It's building an organic cold outreach system to your target customers. It's starting to build an audience on social, right? It's doing all of these things that it doesn't necessarily scale super well. Like the founder doesn't need to be sending 50 DMs and having 20 conversations a day for the entire lifespan of the business. But for the first 90 days to get to 10K and MRR, to get that first initial traction, It comes down to like the founders being able to hustle, connect, and sell. And I think that that's super powerful for three reasons. One, you're going to have a way higher conversion rate because you're actually having a conversation with them, right? You're sitting here and you're talking about their problems. You can like, in a 15-minute conversation, you can sell to them exactly what they need and why your product works. Even if it's 
a lower price, but that gets to point number two is when you're doing stuff manually, you can charge more money because you're not relying on the, the landing page to convert someone at 50 bucks a month. You can make the pitch one-on-one for a hundred bucks a month, specifically because for your first hundred customers, the founder is going to be pretty involved. Like I tell all of the people in Jetpack, like, yo, you should make a Slack channel for all of your early customers, right? Because you want the feedback, you want the relationship, you want to know, you want to have a reason, which means you can also stack that to charge more, which gets you that 10K a lot faster. But would you raise your prices after you've got only like 50 or 100 customers? I would start with my prices higher. And so that piece of it is, and again, it comes back to this ego and fear piece of, I see a lot of tools and a lot of founders undervalue themselves, right? And I think it's from an emotional standpoint when your pricing needs to be a derivative of the value that you provide your end consumer, specifically in B2B. B2C, when there's not a direct financial return for your customer, it's a little bit different, right? Like how to price a hoodie is different than how to price a B2B SaaS. But essentially from a pricing perspective, it's just a derivative. If your tool comes in, and you can take hype period as an example. If your tool means that somebody gets an extra 500 followers a month and that they're selling a $300 course on Gumroad, and you think that if Hype Fury gets them 500 people that they could sell five extra courses, that means that their investment in Hype Fury is worth $1,500 to them because that's how much they're going to make. And so then you can price Hype Fury. For someone like that, they would probably be willing to spend up to $300 because they're still going to see a 5x return. And so for us, from a pricing perspective, I would only go low enough. And it changes again. Once you get into paid acquisition, you drop the price a little bit just because it makes conversion that acquisition wheel kind of run faster. But like when you're doing that one-to-one stuff, if I owned Hype Fury, I would have been charging $300 a month from the start for my first hundred customers because I would have had to get on with them one-on-one and I could convince them of that. I'd be like, yo, Yannick, you're selling an ebook for a hundred bucks. Hype Fury will help you get 500 new followers. And I guarantee that 10 of them will buy your book, meaning that you will have made blank and it would be a good investment for you. And for you, you'd be like, but I'd pay $300 for that. So I think starting at a higher price point, specifically when you're early, which sounds backwards, I'm fully aware. That in itself is like, it's a pretty interesting test. You know, how would you do it? You DM people, you'd say, hey, we're offering this now for 49. They say, okay, next person you DM, it's, it's going to be 69. They say, okay. And then... All of a sudden, you'll get probably to a point where they say, hey, sorry, this is too pricey for me. I'm not going to. And then, you know, OK, I need to go down maybe a little bit. Yep. And see, I and I flip it. I say this is going to cost three grand. And then they go, that's too pricey. And I say, I'll give you a discount for being one of the first customers. And I drop it because it's not up to me to push the price up. It's up to them to push the price down. Because if I offer 49, they're going to say yes. They might have said yes at 99, right? And so I'll start at 200 and they'll be like, eh, that's kind of too much. And I'll be like, eh, I'll give you a discount code for 50% off. And then they'll be like, yes. Or they say no, and I know that it's lower. But if I start high, it's a price anchor for me, meaning that the value that somebody thinks that the product is worth is at 100. Even if I push it down, their perceived value of my product is higher than the $30 that they're paying. And so they stay on for longer. 
They're happier with me because they got a discount. They're going to tell their friends about it. Even if I was trying to sell it for 30 bucks, I'm still going to say 100. That's the route that I go with it just because I'd rather have the market tell me what than me play this guessing game of how high can I push the price? It's like, let me charge as much as possible and let them push me down if they don't see the value there. So we got pricing covered. We're charging three times as much as we did yesterday. What's next? I mean, it worked really well for Hype Fear after our conversation. I was like, look, this is what it should go down. Yeah, so you go through pricing, you go through all of that, and then it goes right into what I was saying previously, which is it's mostly organic. Twitter specifically is a, a phenomenal tool in kind of that B2B and I don't know what to call that middle market. I call them prosumers, meaning that, you know, I'm and I'm sure I'm, I know a lot of Hype Fury's audience and customer base is similar where it's a freelancer or a creator or a solo entrepreneur who can be targeted as if they're a consumer because they're not a business. You're not targeting an enterprise, but they spend money like a business and can make unilateral decisions without calling their boss or talking to their team about, hey, will this platform work for all of us? And so the nice thing, like I said, with Twitter is that these people are in abundance. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that you know would be for basically any tool on the market or any product, your customer is sitting online. And so before you run ads, before you do anything, you need to find these people. And so you go and you literally, I just send 50 DMs a day. 50 DMs a day, and this is like my roadmap to 10K, right? If you have a product that's priced at $100 and you sell three of them a day, just three, just three a day, you'll be at 9K and I'll just round it up to 10K in MRR in your first month. And all it comes down to is you finding 500 customers and sending all of them a DM having conversations, asking them about their pain points, actually selling your product face-to-face -face on calls. Like, that's it. And that's why I say raise your prices because all of these SaaS founders are like, yo, I'm gonna charge 14 bucks. Do you know how many customers you have to get to get to 10K on a $14 product? Charge 100, figure out how to add the value to get it to 100 because if you can close three new customers a day on 100 bucks, you're making your money. Like, very, very quickly. And so that's that next step and it builds onto when you start to get into a position to scale for a couple of reasons. One, you've done discovery. You've literally sat here and sold to a hundred people exactly why they should use your product. Meaning you have a much better understanding of product market fit. You understand your value stack. Your landing page looks good because you've taken all of this data. You have testimonials. You understand the copy and the creative that should go into the ads. And you have money because you're generating revenue to actually run ad campaigns. And that's when you can drop or release a lower ticket product and then run ads because you already have the foundation that means that you can start to do that. Bro, the people that come into Jetpack that are running ads at a product or a service that has no customers. And they come to me and they say, Sam, these ads aren't converting. And I was like, Facebook isn't going to convert if you can't convert. You have to go sell it first, not us. And so let's unpack that a little bit. So you send 50 DMs. What would you send in a DM like that? Who, First of all, how would you find people that would be interested in your product? 100%. I think a lot of it comes down to, 
I mean, you just look at social behavior, right? So hype theory as an example, I think that a huge part of your user base could be Substack writers, right? And so I'm trying to make it tangible. So you could go to the Substack Twitter account and go through all the people that are following them. You click a button and you see a Substack link in their bio. It's a really easy DM. Hey, what's up, Yannick? I just checked out your Substack newsletter. Absolutely love what you're talking about. I actually run a tool that helps Substack writers convert more of their Twitter audience to subscribers. Would love to talk about it for 15 minutes, right? Make it super tangible. You're doing this one-on-one, right? Like, And that's like the whole point is like, I think so many early stage founders, and this is like a, a little bit of a tangent, but so many early stage founders try to focus on scale. The number of businesses that come into Jetpack that are doing less than $500 in revenue every month, but have an active campaign set up. And I was like, yo, active campaign is designed for businesses with thousands of customers with different automation triggers. All your money's going out the door already. <laughs> yeah, like you're spending 50 bucks a month on active campaign when like you have four people that could potentially email you just can sit there for 10 minutes and send them an email. Like everyone's so focused. And again, it goes back to what I was talking about with like the MakerPad. And I love what MakerPad's doing and, and those guys, but I think they feed on people's desire to build, not on people's desire to grow businesses. And I I appreciate them for what they've done to be able to help people build faster and for cheaper and using all of these tools and all of that. But at some point, these people are going to get tired of building and they're going to need to make money off of it, right? Like these indie hackers aren't giving up their evenings and weekends with the kids to build for the sake of building. And if they are cool, but like I think most of them at some point are looking for being able to make some money and leave their job or like whatever. And so, yeah, I think that I think that there needs to be a, a very severe simplification of, and I guess a self-awareness around you don't need to build for scale right away. Like when I do these outreach, I don't really have a template that I use. It's not a copy paste message, right? Like if I'm sending 50 a day and that's my only responsibility as the founder of this cool product that I'm just trying to get to 10K, I'm going to sit on Twitter for nine hours a day. And literally message and interact and talk to everybody in my target market that I can and put out Twitter threads about how Twitter should be used to convert people to Substack, like how to sell more Gumroad products using Twitter, use our tool, right? Like this stuff's not, it's not running Facebook ads. It's not going to get you a thousand customers overnight, but like you're not ready for a thousand customers overnight. And Hype Fury is in a different position, but a lot of these early stage founders need to focus on like building an audience and being able to sell in the DMs and being able to get people on the phone to talk about the problems that they're experiencing that this tool that the founder created will help fix. And if you can get on eight, if you could get on five, five calls with who you would consider to be your target market a day for like 30 days. I'm t- uh, you and like you do a good job of selling, like you'll get to 10k MRR very quickly. That's what we do with all of our products, and we've we've transitioned now that we've done that so many times to like just launching ads immediately because we understand all that dynamic. But like when you're first starting out, like you've got to hustle your way there. Like you got to talk to everybody and their brother, right? Like you look at people like Copy AI, Build in Public, right? Like he just crossed fifty thousand in MRR. Right. But like his main thing at the beginning was like, I'm just going to fucking talk about it. Like, and I know he was sending DMs. I know he was just like, and it was a hustle move. And like, that's what people need to do is they need to build this very minimum viable product 
that delivers on value and then just go and start selling it one-on-one with a higher price point so that you can get more money in the door. And like, then we can have a conversation about Facebook ads. Once you cross 10K in MRR and you can say, yo, I can comfortably spend 50 bucks a day on ads, perfect. Because you already proved that the market wants this. You already have testimonials. You already know how to sell it. You know what language uses. You know the problems that you solve. You have the foundation that you need to be able to build scalable advertising. And that's that's the piece that I think a lot of people skip that foundational piece because it's like boring. It's like a lot of fucking work. It's like you get people will say you and no right to your face about your product, which is like I said, it's the fear. It's like the ego that people don't want to face that of like, oh, man, I have to ask this person for money. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you have to ask for money. That's how businesses operate. If you're not going to ask for money, who is like? You're the founder. You have to do that. And even my internal teams, I have people that struggle asking for money. And I try to put them in charge of new projects or whatever. And very, very quickly from doing that a bunch of times, I understand that the people that I want leading companies for me are people that are very comfortable having a customer tell them no. I didn't even know uh, Americans uh, told people no. They were very politely say, yeah, I don't have time right now. Right. But like, that's what I'm saying. But that hurts. Like the people are like, oh, that's tough. But like, you got to put yourself out there like that. Like there's no other way to do it. Like I think entrepreneurship as a macro theme is designed for people that are fearless feels kind of like a sweeping term, but fearless. I give credit to like, I literally just say like, people go, how do you do, how have you pulled off the things that you've done? Like, I don't have the degree. I don't have like any of the things that people think that I should have. And I literally like very, very transparently, I said, I just have the biggest balls. Like I'm not scared to try it. Okay. And so we've been sending 50 DMs now for the past 30 days. We're reaching our our ninth 10K MRR. What's the next step? I think the, the next step is starting to transition to play with digital ads, paid ads. Paid ads, once you can get to a spot and very specifically in the SaaS world, and it's a little different when you're doing B2B. A lot of my context, just like as background for everybody is is in that prosumer market. And I said, I, I do that for a couple of reasons. One, you can target them like a customer, meaning Facebook ads can work extremely well versus like B2B, you need to do like LinkedIn cold outreach which for me doesn't scale fast enough. Plus really expensive in my experience. Right, it's a lot more manpower. The sales cycle is a lot longer versus we basically run ads for our SaaS products the same way that we run ads for our e-com products. We're trying to get someone to buy immediately, right? And so that's when our pricing becomes more calculated over scale of like, we're pricing things, you know, sub $50, because we know that we can get better conversions versus a $100 product, specifically if it's a subscription, a $100 subscription, you need to spend a good amount of money on ads to be able to get someone to convert. You have more margin to play with, which is nice, but it's a more challenging sell on just you know ads. And so once you get to the MRR, once you do all of that, specifically in, in the prosumer market, yeah, it's time to switch on some ads. And so it's taking all of this information that you have and essentially transitioning it into a landing page that's very, and it's, it's what we're doing with Hype Fury, right? Like a very specific landing page for ads. 
right? Because your buyer psychology, your landing page up to 10K in MRR matters a lot less than it does from 10K in MRR to 100. Because early, before you hit 10, you're doing a lot of this one-on-one selling, meaning that personally, the founder can fill the gaps that the landing page is missing, right? Because it's one-on-one conversation. I can make a custom landing page in conversation to you to share exactly why my product is perfect for you. You switch to ads and you're running a different model. You're having people that you've never met that you you have a rough understanding of who they are and what they need, but you can't give a one-on-one personalized approach. And so you transition that landing page. You start doing just some, some small scale testing on the ads. And we've done it with, with you guys a little bit. And I think we'll probably talk about it later today. But the big thing specifically for early stage founders is having proper expectations for paid ads, specifically in the first month. I think, I think a lot of people pop in to Facebook ads or Instagram ads, Twitter ads, and have this expectation that they're going to get customers on day one. If you hit play, then everything will blow up. Yeah, doesn't... you're like, ship you. And then it's like, here's 5,000 customers. Plus, I think, you know, you can go about it, I guess, in two ways. Either you say, you know, here's my product, buy. You know, you have a cool landing page and it uh, explains, it sells a story. But the other way is, you know, you could have like a free download, something that is a upsell towards your product. Can you, you know, explain a little bit about those two routes? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that piece. The one piece to, to close on the early days of somebody's Facebook ads journey is buying data. And that's, that's what we want to do for that first month on Facebook ads. And it depends on where you're at. Like with us, for our internal companies, essentially with Facebook ads as a background, you can optimize for impressions, link view or link clicks, or like website conversions. Impressions are really cheap. Link clicks are, are moderate and conversions are expensive. And so when you're first starting out, specifically if you have a, a semi-limited budget on ads, you want to optimize for link clicks first and then retarget the people that already clicked the link because after seven days and like maybe 200, $300 worth of spend, you'll have gotten a thousand people to your website that now have brand awareness that will convert a lot better on a retargeting campaign. If you're like me, I'm more willing to quote unquote waste money in the terms of for speed of like we run conversion campaigns straight up because this is what we do. And I'm willing to burn through $1,000 in five days to like get my data. But with that being said, to your question, specifically in the B2C SaaS and and really in all marketing efforts, the key for, for linear growth, being able to scale just up and to the right, is break even at acquisition. Very, very clearly, Hype Fury charges $30 a month. You want to only pay $30 to get a customer to pay you $30. You want to break even month one because what ends up happening is month two, three, four, five are all profit versus a bunch of these venture backs. So like Chime Bank is a, is a you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but a big bank in the US and they pay $250 to get someone to create a bank account with them. But they don't make 200, Two years. right? It takes 18 to 24, 36 months to be able to make that money back, which is why Chime has raised I don't even know, half a billion dollars or whatever they've raised because they need to fund growth. But in the bootstrap world without venture funding, you got to break even on acquisition. And the way that we run it is like we do shorter free trials. We do three days on most of our products. 
because if you spend a hundred bucks on day one, you should make a hundred bucks on day three or four, and it'll just keep cycling. So you're only really risking three days worth of ad spend. And so on the company that I'm not allowed to talk about that we got to to 30K and that we're about to relaunch and push to a hundred, we spent in total about $15,000 on ads, but it was the same $500. I only put 500 bucks in. Yeah, you kept reinvesting, reinvesting. And it just keeps going cyclically like that. And so your goal is break even on acquisition. The businesses that scale exponentially instead of linearly are profitable on acquisition, which is what we did. Because basically, we knew that we would pay for a free trial. And, and our average order value was about $42. We had a couple different pricing tiers, but our average came out about 42 We were getting $4.50 free trials and about a 20% conversion rate, meaning that my cost per acquisition was about 25 to 30 bucks to get someone to pay me on average 42, which meant every three days, I'd put 100 bucks in, but I'd make 150. And then I'd start spending 150. And then I'd make 250. And I'd spend 250. And I'd make five. And like, and then it scales exponentially versus linearly. And that's the key piece for, for any startups that are trying to unlock really, really rapid growth is set up a separate bank account that's designed only for ad spend and funnel all the new revenue that's being generated every month into that bank account to reinvest. Then at the end of the month, you can transfer money out and say, we're going to start with $1,000, boom, 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 and let it rerun all of the recurring. It's a good model. Highly recommend. It's a blast. But you have to be profitable on acquisition to make that work. Now, if you're struggling to get profitable on acquisition on your product itself, meaning Hype Fury is costing $35 to get someone to pay you $30, you're still gonna make you're still gonna be profitable. You're just not gonna be able to scale as quickly. That's when what you're talking about of I call them parallel products. Hype Fury sells a Twitter growth tool, you sell a Twitter growth guide. And so what you want to do, and it, it changes the way that you do your marketing. You want to price that as like this low ticket offer, which is, you know, an ebook, uh, a workshop, you know, something that's like very easy to sell at scale. You don't want it to be a hoodie or anything that there's like a heavy cost of goods associated with, like that doesn't make sense. And then you want to run ads at that. And you want to be at least break even or profitable on selling this precursor parallel offer. Because what ends up happening is if you're selling an ebook for $12, and you're getting people to buy the ebook for 10 bucks, every customer there, you then remarket to using email, SMS, the content in the ebook itself, all of those things to push them over. And essentially, you're, you're creating two businesses. You're creating an exponentially growth digital product with a SaaS on the back end. I mean, your cost per acquisition on the SaaS is zero because this business unit is handling all of your growth. And so if you can create this exponential cycle of being profitable on acquisition here, your SaaS wins. It's a positive free roll, which like in gambling, you know, means you literally can't lose. Like anything that you get out of it, you win. And so even if you sell a thousand ebooks at break even, you didn't lose anything, but you have a thousand people that will potentially become customers for free. And so that's like, even if five of them come and be a customer, you win. You're going to get a lot more than five out of a thousand, but like, the point holds of like any customers that you come out of this, you're not losing money over here. So it's just, a, it's like, you can't lose like 
any way you cut the cake, if you have five customers or 500, it's a win either way. And that's, that's the value of like you were saying, putting this like precursor offer that you promote on top. And there's a bunch of dudes on Twitter that do an absolutely phenomenal job of doing that. And that, and that a lot of people on Twitter don't know that they ran ads on Facebook for it too. Yeah, they remarket people on Facebook again. People that visited their Gumroad sales page but didn't uh, convert yet. <laughs> didn't convert. Yeah. Uh, Works so, brilliantly. Thank God for the Facebook pixel. Yeah. And so I guess for for like SaaS products, are maybe are a little bit more difficult to you know, get your head around what value you're getting from. Is that also a strategy you could use to, you know, I don't know, some kind of productivity tool where you get into, here are seven productivity hacks. You can download it for free or for, I don't know, a couple of bucks and then transition them to like a more complicated thing. So you're saying if you had a productivity tool on the back end and you put out a resource about productivity tools. Yeah, something, you know, yeah, it might be not a vanilla kind of product. That's maybe hard to sell. You're struggling to sell it. Would it be interesting to like create a precursor product for that? You know, a digital download? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of when we talk about the precursor products, the one thing that we actually did kind of skip over was, you know, the content within that, right? We talked about it being parallel of like Twitter growth tool, Twitter growth guide and kind of breeze past this remarketing. And I said, you know, you can use email, you can use text, remarketing ads, and the content within the book. It's one of my favorite things to do. And sometimes I don't even do it through like an ebook. One of my most favorite things to do is just to like create a fake publication and then write an article on my own company and then target people that are interested in that thing and then put the pixel there and retarget them if they read the article, which works really, really well in, in what I call like sniper LinkedIn ads, which we can get into. And so, yeah, but in, in your remarketing, in your content of the ebook that you sell, a lot of what you're doing in that content is designing the user's mind to be open to your product, right? And so in Hype Fury's case, the content of that book, like you guys would say, number one, you need to post consistent content on Twitter, right? Because that's what Hype Fury helps you do. And so you're programming them to understand the value of your product on the back end, right? So it's like, you need to be able to create consistent content. You need to be able to post regularly on these high engagement times. You need to be able to link to your Gumroad or LinkedIn or whatever so that you can, you can build a full network. You need to, whatever your product stack is, you're priming them to understand what you can create. And you can do that in the content of the book itself or your parallel offer, or, I mean, not or, really both. And in the email marketing campaigns that come out after they've bought that book over the next seven to 14 days to get them to transition in. Cool, man. Sam, where can people find you? Honestly, just sign up for uh, for Jetpack. It's jetpack.so. You can join. We have a free trial. You can pop in. I do daily office hour calls just like this, actually. And we can talk about anyone's product. Um, Twitter, I'm Sam Thompson. Instagram, at Samuel.Thompson. Yeah, you can find me. No sweat. Thank you, man. I had a blast. Thank you. Same, same. Loved it. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this one, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter with your favorite part. See you again next week.